Welcome. My name is Thomas Fitzpatrick, one of the pastors here. Uh, if you're joining, it is so good to have you. If it's your first time to West Bowles, welcome. First time in a long time, welcome back. Uh, you chose a great weekend to come. We are just kickstarting a new series this morning called The Story. And uh, it's an incredible series that we're going we're gonna to be doing through the uh, next couple of, of months together is looking at the entire biblical narrative from start to finish. And we're going to do it in a way that will hopefully make more sense and be more meaningful and memorable to you than maybe you just getting into this book on your own and trying to just trudge through it. Hopefully through the series you will see, maybe for the first time ever, how all the different stories in Scripture fit perfectly together and how they all ultimately tell of a much larger story. Uh, I want to encourage everyone, especially our visitors, if you haven't already, go in the foyer, grab your free copy of this book. We want everybody to be reading along with us and, and walking step by step, hand in hand in the journey. There's a, a few out there. If we run out, christianbook.com has the cheapest one, $5. Uh, you can go and, and grab one there. But make sure that you do that. I want you to join us on the journey. And for those of you who already grabbed a book, I've already had a few people run into me this morning and say, we read chapter one, Pastor, we read chapter one. Like they say in Awana, way to go. Way to go, way to go. If you're still with me in chapter 31, then I'll really be impressed. Uh, there's a lot to this story, and we're not going to be able to talk about every single thing that we read each and every week, especially this first week, Genesis 1 through 8. But each week, Nathan or myself will point out some things that we want to highlight. We want you to take away from these different stories. So let me pray about that, and we'll dive into it. God, you are an amazing, creative God. And you have written this incredible story, God. And as Rebecca so eloquently put before, you included us in it. You didn't have to. We were probably the least fit to be in this story, and yet here we are as one of the most important parts of it. And so this morning, God, we would ask that you would just illuminate our hearts and our minds to you and to the story that you have written about yourself and about us. Would you help us to lose ourselves and ultimately find ourselves in your words, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our hearts are captivated by stories, aren't they? From Lord of the Rings to Chronicles of Narnia, from Twilight to Hunger Games, there's just something about the power and the pull of a great story. Our hearts come alive when we hear stories. Our hearts don't come alive with Sudoku or linear algebra. And if those things do excite you, we've got a great counseling staff that can... <laughs> I can walk you through that. But everyone, everyone loves a good story. From little kids who want to hear just one more story before bed, to adults who will stay up all hours of night and wait in line in the freezing cold to see the newest installment of their favorite trilogy, right, on the big screen. We all love story. There's something about stories. And maybe that's because you and I each have a story. You see, your life with all of its ups and downs, highs and lows, is an incredibly important and intricate story. It has characters and conflict and a little bit of cray-cray. I'm just going to say cray-cray every week to see if I can fit it in somehow. I don't, I don't know what it is. But, but our life is just like that, right? And the fact that you're here this morning proves to me your story is still being written. It's not done yet. But more than just having a story, you are actually part of a story. Your story is part of a much greater story, a much grander story, the story of God. The moment God spoke creation into existence, he began telling a story, a story of love, of loss, and ultimately eternal life. 
And although at times the Bible can be a little overwhelming, it can seem outdated, at times it reads like a, a textbook or some people think it reads like a rule book, the truth is this is just a story, the story of God. And it's a story that's unlike all other stories and a story that will actually make sense of and give meaning to your story. Stories keep us sane, don't they? Stories help us to make sense of life. And everyone has a story. Everyone needs a story. Whether they recognize it or not, story is built into us. See, you need and you already have a story. It's a story that answers the big questions of life, a story that helps us get through the highs and the lows, the joy and the heartache. It's a story we all have when we all need one that explains the past, enlivens the present, and excites us for the future. We all have, we all need a story that's big enough, strong enough, good enough to base our lives off of, to devote our lives to. And again, whether you recognize it or not, you have a story. You've given your life to a story. See, even atheists have a story. They're stories that everything randomly and accidentally fell into place. They're stories that we are more or less highly developed pond scum. Their story is that matter is all that there is, and what you really do doesn't really matter. And there's a lot more to their story than that, and I don't want to belittle or poke fun at it, but that's their story. That's how an atheist makes sense of the world. So from atheist to Christian, humanist to Buddhist, everyone has and needs a narrative to navigate life. And so this morning, I want to ask you, what's your story? When you want to know a little bit more about somebody, maybe see where they've been or what they've been through, you could ask them. So, what's your story? What a fascinating question. What is your story? Chances are you haven't put a whole lot of thought into it. You don't know what narrative you navigate life with. And Although you haven't read your own story, you don't know much about your story, you have one. Maybe it's filled with confusion and uncertainty. Maybe your story is filled with chaos and heartache. I don't know what your story is, but I want you to ask yourself that question this morning. What is your story? And although I'm a little biased, given my choice of profession, I think that God's story, the story of Scripture, is the single greatest story of all time. And this story is your story. This story is your story. And I'm not alone in saying this is an incredible story. You see, 168,000 Bibles are printed or distributed every single day. No book in all of human history has ever outsold the Bible in a given year. There's something about this story that the human heart gravitates towards. There's something about this story that just pulls us in a direction that other stories simply cannot. This story is God's story. This story is your story. And it begins in such an incredible, credible way. Now, there are some great pieces of literature out there that have some powerful opening lines. Here are a few. See if you can guess where some of these opening words come from. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. Who penned these words? Charles Dickens in what book? Tale of Two Cities. You guys are much smarter than early service. Much smarter. They're like, uh... How about this one? There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Who penned these words? C.S. Lewis in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It was a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good... Wow, Pride and Prejudice must have been your 
winter reading. <laughs> Your homework assignment. How about in my younger, more vulnerable years, my father gave me some advice that I've been... Okay, okay. English majors, be quiet. Give the rest of us a chance. Actually, I'm glad you answered because I didn't know a single one of those. I just found them online. There's some great opening lines, though, in literature that's out there. But nothing compares to the opening words of the story, the Bible. See, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's amazing how God can say so much without having to say all that much. That one simple line, God, through Moses, right? We believe that God gave Moses this insight and helped him to pen these words. He clears up for us so many misconceptions and misunderstandings about how the story, our story, the story of the world truly began. Now, I know at this point, a lot of people like to start talking about or debating the particulars of the creation story. At this point, we can discuss and even argue over dates, times, ages, stages, science, and evolution. But those are questions that this story, the story of Genesis, doesn't answer and doesn't really care to answer. Genesis is not about the how of creation. See, the Bible, especially here at the beginning, is not intended to read like a science textbook that explains the minute details of how it all came to be. This story, the story of Genesis, is designed to tell you who and why. Not necessarily how. But why is there a world versus none at all? Why is it the way that it is? Why am I in this world? And who is ultimately responsible for all that's in this world? See, those are the questions that this book answers, not the how. But if you really care about that, if you're seriously interested in the how of creation, let me suggest a few books and authors for you. Hugh Ross, who wrote Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, as well as Navigating Genesis. And then Lee Strobel, who wrote A Case for a Creator. If you're interested in the how of creation, the specific details, read these books, they'll blow your mind. But if you want to understand who and why, behind creation, read Genesis. Because Genesis answered those questions in a profound way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, Moses could not have written these words. Moses could not have penned these words at a more opportune time. Because when these words were first written, people had all kinds of crazy ideas and theories as to how the story, how their story truly began. Some ancient civilizations believed that sea monsters created the earth. Other groups believed that powerful and mysterious forces like the sun or the moon or the wind or the seasons, those were behind and in charge of all of life. Others believed there were a multitude of gods in the sky who fought one another and that the world was more or less their ravaged battlefield. Other groups believed that there were deities in the heavens who needed humanity to please them and appease them. And so they made creation to basically be their toy and their plaything. And as all of those stories are being shared, God comes down and he says, that's not how the story begins. And if you get the beginning wrong, you're going to get the rest of it wrong. So let me tell you, Moses, let me tell you, world, how the story begins. In the beginning, I created not chance, not sea monsters, not highly developed pond scum, not you, not me, not a bunch of little G gods, but one superior big G God. 
He's the one who created everything. It's he who purposed and planned the entire cosmos from the furthest galaxy to the smallest cell. According to Genesis, our world, our story, did not begin as the byproduct of some chaotic cosmic accident. It's the product of a crafty cosmic creator. And this creator is the first most important character in this story. Why? Because based on this single line, he's the author of the story. It's his story. He started the story and thus will ultimately see it to its end. And since God is responsible for this story, since he is responsible for all of creation, that means he's in charge of all creation. That means that he rules and reigns over creation. The sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons, those things are important and massive and majestic and awe-inspiring, but they fail in comparison to the one who made them. You want to talk about awesome and majestic? Talk about the one who made the seasons. Those things don't rule over the earth. The one who made those things rules over the earth. And not just the earth, but the heavens as well. All that we see is not all that there is. All that we're surrounded with is not all that he made. And can you imagine if this was kind of like the appetizer, what the main dish looks like? He made the heavens and the earth. It is he who made all that we see and then some. It is he who's responsible for all of this and for you. It is he who is behind creation. So that's the who behind the story. Who made all of this? God did. But the story continues. And if you think that opening line was power-packed, just wait. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. You see, before God Without God, void of God, things are empty and dark and chaotic and formless. The words used there for formless and empty are tohu and bohu. Sounds like two reject cartoon characters, doesn't it? Like, like something you'd see on Cartoon Network at 2 a.m. The adventures of tohu and bohu. Well, tohu and bohu don't describe two cartoon characters. Tohu and bohu are two words that describe an existence that is filled with darkness and chaos. Without God, before God, void of God, everything is tohu and bohu. But when God comes, when his spirit comes, and it says he was hovering over the waters, the imagery there is of a mother hen spreading out her wings to cover her baby chicks until they are fully formed. So God comes into the tohu and bohu, and he spreads out his wings, and he brings peace, and he brings life. He brings light. He transforms things, he fills things, he illuminates things, he undoes the consequences of tohu and bohu. And what's amazing about this is that he creates and he also combats tohu and bohu, you know how? By speaking, just by speaking. Some Jewish theologians believe that God may have actually sung creation into existence. That word there for God said could also be translated and God sang. What an interesting idea that is. That he literally opened his mouth and began singing this beautiful, harmonious, jaw-dropping song that we see and feel all around us. La, 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 la. Boom. I didn't do it justice, but I think, I think this video will. That's no accident. That is far from some cosmic collision. That's the handiwork of a creator, God. 
That, that's his song. I was just thinking as I was watching that video, that gives a whole new meaning to do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, right? Do, boop, re, re, mi, boop. As he's singing it, it just comes. Why are we so captivated by creation? Why could we just stand there and look past my bald head and instead peer at that? Why? It's the song of God. And he's singing it so that you will hear it. He's singing it because he wants you to know he created you in that, in that same song, in that same light. So whether he spoke it into being or sang it into being, or sung it into being, it doesn't matter. The point is the same. He made it all without much effort without any opposition. See, in ancient stories, the world always began out of some cosmic conflict, the result of some cosmic clash. But God simply spoke it into being. It wasn't struggle, it wasn't strife, it was just speech. All that we see around us is effortless and easy for God to create. So he didn't make this world because he was in some battle. He didn't make the world because he needed something out of it. He didn't make the world because he needed a new toy to play with. He made it because he wanted to. He made it because he could. He made it because he is good. See, this is his very nature. He's generous and good, powerful and productive, beautiful and bold, living and loving. And out of that nature stems this creation that is all of those things and then some. He couldn't help but create because that's who he is. So the who of creation is this one true God. The why, why did he make the world? Because he's the only one who could. He's the only one strong enough to make something out of nothing. He's the only one loving enough to share his life and his traits with something else. He's the only one powerful enough to bring beauty, pattern, and design out of tohu and bohu. And that's why I want us to end this morning. See, the opening chapter of the story teaches us so many things. But the one key takeaway I want you to walk away with is this. God is the only one who brings beauty, life, and design out of pain, darkness, and chaos. He's the only one who does that. And these days of creation, as they unfold, oh, it's this beautiful, symbolic representation of that truth. Day one, this might be a little small for you to see, I'll walk you through it. God said, let there be light, and there was. So he separated the light from the dark. Day two, God said, let there be a vault between water from water. Let us separate the sky from the sea. Day three, God said, let water be gathered and let us separate the land from the water. And he created dry ground. In these first three days, we see God purposefully creating spaces, separating things out, framing things, if you will. And then, out of his goodness, he goes back into those same spaces he created and he fills them with wonder. Day four, second paragraph down on page two. God fills the space created by separating light from dark, and he fills that space with the sun and the moon and the stars. I love in James 1.17, that's many chapters later in this story, God's the father of the heavenly lights. He got that from day four. Day five, God fills the space he created when he separated the sky and the sea, when he framed the sky and the sea. He now goes back into that space, and he fills it with birds and with fish. Day six, the space when he created by, by separating land from sea, that, that frame now, he goes back in and he fills with animals and with humans. And then on day seven, he rests. Not because he was completely spent, although who could blame him if he was? Like he just made the cosmos. Take the day off, okay? Take two if you need. 
It wasn't because he was tired. God, rest on the seventh day because when these words were originally penned, it was described in this way. When, when a kingdom was at peace, when all chaos and disorder and turmoil had been dealt with, a king would sit back and it was said of this king, he would rest on his throne. And so God, he has come in and he has pushed back all opposition. All the tohu and bohu is now beautiful and filled with life. And this kingdom is wonderful. It's good, it says. It looks good. It functions good. It's in harmony with its good creator. And so what does the king do on the seventh day? He sits back on his throne and he says, it's all good. Colossians tells us he kicks his feet up. See, church, there is one creator God. He is good and, gen and generous, caring and creative. He made everything in the universe. He made sense out of the chaos. He filled the voids with life, and he brought light out of the darkness. And there is no story like this. This is the story. I was watching some of the games last night, darn Ravens, and... It's funny when they introduce the different players, right? And they talk about what school they're from. And some guys are like, the Ohio State University. And then everybody kind of follows off on that. Like, the Community College of Denver. <laughs> but they're like, the. Right? It's important that you know it's the school. The one. This is the story. And there's nothing like it. But one of the most amazing parts about this story is that you and I are not afterthoughts in it. This is not the story of God making us for his own selfish purposes. This is actually the story of God selflessly making things for us. You might have noticed on page three, starting about two-thirds of the way down, it says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. Wait, I thought we just had an account of the heavens and the earth. Why, why do we have two in here? And there are some differences in the order and the timing. And some point out and say, see, you can't trust this book. In the very beginning, it's already off. It already contradicts itself. False. You have to understand what the purpose of these two stories is. The purpose is to make a point, to tell you how. Not to tell you how, but to tell you why and who. And here's why. Here's who. I think the way we're supposed to look at it is through these different analogies that God gives to us in these two accounts. So one account, that first account, kind of day one through seven, it kind of reads like a wedding. Think about a wedding. You save the best to last, don't you? The less important characters kind of come out first, like the crazy aunt and uncle, and then and maybe your grandparents, and then it's like, okay, yeah. I mean, now that they're not important, but compared to the bride, they're not important. Who comes out at the very end in a, in a wedding ceremony? Who's the one we wait for? Who's the last character to enter into the story? It's the beautiful bride. That's what happens in the first account of creation. God says, it's kind of like a wedding. And just wait for it. Just wait for her. Here she comes. The most important part, humanity. And ladies, you could argue, you were actually last. So the most important part. <laughs> and the guys are like, it's not importance. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a complication. It's, it's complexity. There's the last part. Anyway, okay. But isn't that an interesting way to look at creation? It's like a wedding story. And the very last thing that comes out is this beautiful bride. And God says, just in case you don't believe me, I want to tell you another way that, that creation might look to you. I want to, I want to make sense of it for you in, in a different light. Read it like a graduation in the second account. Because in a graduation, what happens there? 
In, in a wedding, it's, it's, the, it's the best comes out last, but in a graduation, it's kind of reversed, isn't it? Like the best professors and the best PhDs, they're the ones that come out first. They're kind of like, yeah, we're in charge of everything that's about to come out behind us. We're the ones that shaped and molded everything that comes out behind us. And so the second account of creation reads like a graduation. Adam and Eve, come out first. You're the PhD of all creation. And then you kind of made sense of everything that's going to come after you. They don't contradict each other. They tell a beautiful story. And the story is that you and I, humanity, is the apex of all that God has made. And if those analogies don't prove it to you, then the language that God uses about you should. Humanity is the only part of creation where God uses the words very good. Middle of page three. Highlight that, circle it, put your name by it. Plus, humanity is the only part of creation where God says, let us make them, man and woman both, let us make humanity in our image. All right, hold up here. Uh, our? I thought you were alone up there, God. Well, yes and no. See, God is a relational being. He exists in this beautiful, self-contained, yet sacrificial relationship. We call this relationship the Trinity. It's the idea that somehow and in some way, God is three separate entities, but the same essence He's the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three, dancing with one another in this harmonious dance along with the song of creation. If you're thoroughly confused, come find me later. But this is what I think God is saying. Let's make creation, let's make humanity especially, out of all creation, let's make them to exist like we do in this beautiful, harmonious, life-giving, love-based relationship. Let's make this last part of creation, look and feel and love like we do. Let's make the apex of all creation have power and authority and love and imagination and freedom, ingenuity, spiritual. Let's make them like us. It seems as if what God did through the other five or six days, he's doing for us. Let me see if I can't make sense of this for you. What did God do in the first five or six days? He separated things apart. He framed things out. And then he went back in and he filled those spaces with wonder. And he is doing that to the umpteenth degree for you. He is speaking you into existence, separating you apart, separating you from the dust of the ground, separating you from the animals, separating you from man and woman, separating humanity apart. He's framing you out and then his desire is to go back into you and to fill you. And not just with more stuff, but with his spirit. He wants to create a space in you so that he could ultimately fill you. And isn't that interesting? Because life is full of these moments when we're stretched, isn't it? It's filled with these moments when we're separated from something or someone. And sometimes that stretching, that separation hurts like heck. This last week, some were separated from loved ones. It can happen through pain, disease, decay, death. We are separated from things. Or it can happen even through abundance and through blessing, through new opportunities and new relationships. We're stretched. What God is doing in that moment is the same thing he was doing the first six days of creation. He is separating things out, spacing things apart, framing them so he can fill them. That void in your heart was made for him. That space that is being created within you was meant to be filled with him. That's what he does. He separates, he frames, and then he fills and infuses. And I want you to know that is so true for you. God framed you and he did so so he could ultimately fill you. 
That's what I think God was doing when he placed those gardens or those, those trees in the middle of this garden. Here we go, page four. At the very top, we read in the middle of this garden. So God separates a garden, and what does he do? He fills it. He fills it with humanity. He fills it with these two trees. In the middle of this garden, he places these two trees. One is the tree of life. The other is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then God gives the command to not eat of the second tree. And I don't know about you, but does it bother you that he placed the trees in the garden? Does it bother you that he put them right in the middle of the garden? It's like, okay, okay if you've got to put the trees in the garden, would you put them in the corner somewhere, kind of behind like a mirage of some sort, right? Like a cliff and then the trees down there. Why in the middle? Well, it's, it's symbolic of what he's doing in our hearts. See, we get all theological and philosophical about these trees. It makes perfect sense. Like the sky, like the sea, like the land, God creates an empty space and then he wants to fill it. And the tree of life presents you with the opportunity to fill it with life, to fill it with him, to fill that space with his spirit. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil gives you an opportunity to fill it with selfishness, with sin, with an obsession for stuff like sex and stuff and success. And because we're made in his image, because we have freedom, because the nature of love, unlike the rest of creation where he's like, here's the space, I'm gonna fill it with this. He actually gives us the choice. Here's the space, what would you like to fill it with? Because you are like me and you're totally free, I'm not gonna force myself on you. I force the sky, I force the sun, I force the, force the birds, I'm not gonna force myself into this space. I'm gonna let you pick what you want in this space. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, every day we gotta walk past those trees. Every day we gotta walk past that opportunity, that choice, and we gotta choose what we wanna fill this space with. He fashioned this space, he formed this space. And now he wants to fill it. And every day you gotta choose whether or not you will let him do that. And church, we better choose wisely because as soon as humanity does its own thing, as soon as we choose to fill our heart with something other than God, Everything goes back to that chaotic original state. Tohu and Bohu make a comeback. I thought we just read about them one time. Oh, no, no, no. They are always ready to come back into the story. Hatred, animosity, envy, fear, anxiety, those things come rushing into our story as soon as humanity loses sight of who made them and who's supposed to fill them. We see it in this story. We go from paradise to pandemonium like that. Why? Because the space that was designed to be filled with God has been filled with something other than. And when that happens, all hell breaks loose. Because hell is the absence of God. Hell is a, a place where the goodness of God, the life of God does not exist. And so when you choose to fill this space with something other than what it was intended and designed to be filled with, Tohu and Bohu will come rushing back in. And that happens in our story, doesn't it? We have Adam and Eve, who started loving each other, filled with the life of God, they make a choice to fill themselves with something other than God. All of a sudden, their sons are at each other. And then they continue to fill themselves with something other than God. And so by the time we get to the story of the flood, the entire world is at each other. And that happens today. If you want tohu and bohu, you can have it. And it will look and feel like death. But if you want to be infused with the Spirit of God, which is what you were created to be filled with, it will feel like anything but. 
In the beginning of the story, God seems to be saying to us, if you continue to disregard me, if you keep rejecting me, if you push me away, chaos will rule your life. It will be just like it was at the beginning, formless and empty. But if you let me have control of your life, if you recognize me as the creator of your life, I will push back the chaos. I will hover over your life. I will defeat the tohu and bohu that is filling you up. I will fill the empty, cold, chaotic, dark space in your heart with the very best I have to offer. Wow, what a story. I love Narnia. I love Lord of the Rings. I'm growing in my love of Hunger Games, and I could care less for Twilight. But... (laughs) Did that for you, youth group. But there's just nothing like the story of God. There's just nothing like it. The story of God speaking the world into existence, bringing order out of the chaos, light out of the darkness, light out of the death. There's no story like it. And the God who started the cosmos in that way wants you to know that's his plan for you as well. The same God that spoke the cosmos into existence, the same God who separated light from dark, who stretched the sky from the sea, he's the same God who spoke you into being, who fashioned and formed and framed out your heart, and he's a God who wants to fill that space with wonder. And if you will just let him, you will see and be a part of something incredible. So as we end this morning, if you've never believed fully and said, God, I believe you started this story. I think you are the author and originator of this story and my story. You made all of this purposefully and with a plan, all of this and all of this. If you've never said that before, I want you to say that this morning. I want you to believe that in your heart this morning. I want you to come down, find me, go in the foyer, find another one of the ministers or pastors. Ask God this morning to come in and to make sense of your chaos, to fill in your voids, to push away your tohu and your bohu, and to bring wonder and life. The story, your story, begins with God. God framing and God filling. Let me pray that will be true for each of us. God, thank you for an incredible opening chapter to the story. Thanks for clarifying things, God. It's easy for us to get confused as to where we came from. Some will say we're an accident. Some will say we're we're mutations. Others will say uh, we are gods ourselves. But you told us how the story really began. Help us to devote ourselves and again to lose ourselves in this story so that we might ultimately find and make sense of our own story. Bless us, God, as we look to you. We pray that you will continue to frame and create and separate things within us so that you would fill us with life and with wonder. If we've never said yes to you as the author of our story, would we do so right now? Would we say, God, the space that's in me, a space that you created, it's yours, you can have it, have your way. Come and fill it with whatever good things you have planned. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Great start to the story. Can't wait for next week. We'll do a little bit more. Uh, One side note, if you were not with us last week, we unpacked our 2020 vision, our hope for the next five years in this church. A lot of cool stuff. I've got a lot of great feedback on that. It's on the back of your bulletin, summarized for you. If you need some more information, we'll try to put it online as well. But we're excited about where we're going as a church over the next five years, and we really want you to be a part of it. So if you're with us today, come back, grab your mug, grab your book. Have an amazing week. Don't forget to put your dollar in the bin. Help a family in need. Take care.